It's a hot summer night at a state park in Oklahoma. Two groups of boys are on the property. One calls itself the Rattlers. The other, the Eagles. And just around midnight, the Rattlers paint their faces and scramble through the night to raid the Eagles' camp. The Rattlers crash through the windows. They're yelling, hollering, they're picking things up and throwing them. And once the place is entirely trashed, the Rattlers leave. And the Eagle Boys are left crying. Some stuff stones into their socks to make a kind of weapon, just in case they need to protect themselves. Or take revenge. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, author Gina Perry is taking us to Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma. It's where, in 1954, these boys thought they were going to summer camp. But what they and their parents didn't know is that they'd actually been recruited for a psychological experiment. That true story, after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. It's the summer of 1954, and there are two school buses full of 11- and 12-year-old boys traveling through Oklahoma. They are headed four hours southeast of Oklahoma City to a place called Robbers Cave State Park. And it's where the events of author Gina Perry's book, The Lost Boys, took place. The parents have been approached by an academic from Oklahoma, and they've been told that their boys have an opportunity to go away on summer camp and learn leadership skills, unbeknownst to the parents and unbeknownst to the children. Musafa Sharif, who was the experimenter and the social psychologist who was behind this camp, actually wanted to look at how you could bring groups of people together, create conflict between them, and then establish peace. So his idea for this summer camp was that it was going to be an experiment in how to fan conflict 
and create warring tribes and then how to institute harmony and bring those groups who are in hostility and hated one another into a peaceful situation. But, of course, the parents didn't know that and neither did the kids. In the opening of the book, you write about how there was something about Sharif that that kind of grabbed you and, and fascinated you. What was it that sort of really caught your attention about him as a, a character or an, or an experimenter? He was a very complex and troubled character, charming and bullying, uh, vindictive and tender. Uh, he was such a mass of contradictions, as people are. I felt that there was a very strong link from his childhood, which was traumatically disrupted in Turkey by war. He lived in a village where uh, Armenian people were marched past houses as they were led out to what we know now as genocide. Mm. War figured hugely in his formative years and it was the war between people who had formerly been neighbours and friends. So I think that profoundly affected him as a young man. It drove him to really understand what it was that could divide people as much as what brought them together. So the camp starts sort of more normally. At what point does it enter into this more experimental territory? For them, the first few days were very normal. They were encouraged to explore and um, climb up the um, through the cave uh, formations, go for long walks. They went out canoeing and kayaking. But what they didn't know was that there was another group who were going to be at this camp. At the end of that phase, the camp counsellors, who were actually experimenters in disguise, announced that there was a second group at the campsite and that that second group was interested in challenging them to a tournament. So that's when things began to change. How quickly do the groups kind of start to form their own identities? And what happens as the two groups start to interact with each other? When the camp councillors announced that there was going to be a tournament and they were going to be involved in a whole range of different events where they would be competing for prizes, and these prizes were large knives, each boy in the winning team would get this big knife and a shared trophy and the losing team would get nothing. And... This is August in Oklahoma and the temperature, I mean, it was really hot and they had 16 events over four days Mm. as part of this tournament. So you can imagine it was a gruelling, gruelling physically for the children um, playing out in that kind of heat and gruelling emotionally too because... They were egged on by the men to really um, be hyper-competitive and to regard their uh, opposition as enemies. And so the men really fanned the flames. Did Sharif get the war he was hoping for? He got it, but it was also because he created it. Mm -hmm. And 
We have at the end of the tournament, the boys were throwing food at one another, uh, calling one another names, threatening one another, and then, of course, there is a final confrontation where there's fist fights and the men actually have to pull the children apart. How did Sharif and the counsellors wrap this up? How did they kind of bring it to a close? The whole final stage of the experiment was creating a problem that was too large for the two groups to solve on their own. And what Sharif wanted to do was to get them, force them to cooperate. And the way he did that was he and his team went up the hill behind the mess hall, disconnected the water supply and buried the water pipe in fallen rocks. And, you know, as I said earlier, this was extremely intense, hot summer in August in Oklahoma. And early in the morning after the boys had filled their canteens for the day, one of the men announced that the water had run out and that meant they had to work together. And what happened was that, of course, once they started working together, any distinction between them in terms of groups began to dissolve. You know, it was a very happy ending for, for Sharif. There's something about this experiment, all of, all of his experiments, you know, they're, they're almost ide- idealistic in a way. They're, they're sort of an attempt to redeem humanity. <laughs> they're an attempt to, yes. to, to show that, that people are not necessarily naturally, um, you know, naturally want to fight, that it arise, arises from the circumstances. Do you think he believed that or hoped to find it to be true in his work? I think he did believe it. But I also think that his belief shaped the experiment so that it was not so much testing hypotheses as proving his point. Mm. I think he had a lot invested in the experiment proving his own personal belief about the fact that we're not hardwired for conflict, mm. that it, it, it is brought about by our competition for resources. It's not inevitable that we will fight and hate people who are different from us, that we can actually learn to live in harmony. You know, in your research uh, on this, you had to go really deep. You were able to track down some of the kids who are a part of this experiment and still alive today. Did they understand what they had participated in? Initially, I, I thought when I met some of the boys, I thought that I'd be interviewing them about how the experiment had shaped them. But it became very quickly clear to me that they'd never been told it was an experiment. Mm. So they had a lot of questions about the experiment. They had a lot of questions about Sharif. They had questions about how much their parents knew. And, of course, they had a lot of questions then for themselves about, well, how did this shape me? How has this influenced my choices or my experiences? Yeah, you you were suddenly the <laughs> sort of the the messenger, the storyteller, the one who could construct the bigger picture around this. Obviously, what must have been a really intense experience for them. Yeah, and and in a way, I felt like I was also a debriefer because all all of the ones that I spoke to 
they sensed at the time that there was something not right about mm. this setup. Even in the archival material, some of the boys are recorded as questioning the men about, for example, why are their microphones hanging from the roof of the mess hall or questioning why the men didn't intervene when boys were fighting. But, of course, these men were academics at a prestigious university and, you know, their parents had been impressed enough to send them along. So there are lots of reasons for the boys to follow the men's lead. But what's so interesting to me is that in the, the writing up of the experiment is the way that the experimenters uh, erase themselves from the experiment. You know, they, mm. they describe it as if they'd simply set up a scenario and then watched events unfold. And yet my research and, and, and the archival material shows that the men were actively involved in shaping the kind of behaviour they were after, in encouraging the conflict as much as the peacemaking to get the kind of story and narrative about not just war and peace but the power of science to and social psychology to shape this kinds of society that we want to live in. In doing this work, you had to dive so deeply. You, you contacted these people and then had to kind of explain to them what their own experience had been and why it maybe had never quite settled right, you know, and then and you're sort of also kind of crafting, you have to go and craft a narrative about all of this too. How did you end up just personally kind of feeling about the experiment, the ethics of it? Did, were you able to sort of land somewhere kind of internally in your journey through this about, about uh, how you felt and thought about it? It's a funny thing when you're doing research. Um, for example, when I interviewed OJ Harvey, one of Sharif's students, I interviewed him quite early in the process of my research and uh, I went to his home in Colorado and we spent a few days actually talking things through. And that was before I'd met any of the boys mm. and unfortunately OJ died while I was writing the book. But I wanted to be able to go back and challenge him a bit more. I mean, we'd gotten on very well. I had a delightful time uh, interviewing him. He was a fascinating man. He had great memories and he gave me terrific insights into Musa Sharif. But I wished that I'd gone back. I wish I could have gone back and said, once I knew more, how could you have done this? Mm. How could you have justified in your own mind subjecting children to this experience for three weeks and how could you balance that with your ideals? And I did wonder how they were able to keep that big picture because they had to forget in a way that these were children in order to conduct the experiment. And yet every minute of every day in their written observations, they're dealing with children and they're children who are, are crying and homesick. There's children who are wetting the bed. There are children who are obviously distressed by the mixed messages they're getting. So it wasn't as if they weren't experiencing all that firsthand and that's always troubled me. And no, I've never been able to resolve that. 
Gina Perry is the author of The Lost Boys, Inside Musafir Sharif's Robber's Cave Experiment. It is an incredible book. And thank you, Gina, for telling us this story today. Thank you. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by... Amanda McGowan. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder-Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Baudelaire Seuss. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Tanaka Maria Muvabaridwa. Ellie Katz. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by... Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.